0: We're not really looking at the Proverbs reading today. I just thought it'd be fun to make George say the word vomit in church. (laughs) This Lent. uh, We've been thinking all about how to navigate life God's ways. Those turning points and decisions that we have to make. How do we get them right and know which way to go? And we've seen that, that God's direction is perfectly and primarily revealed through his written word, through the commanding scripture, which in turn can be conveyed by the compelling spirit. It can be clarified with the counsel of the saints and confirmed with circumstantial signs. But what if you've been through all of these principles that we've examined this length and you've, you've checked off every single exit point on this magic roundabout of life that we've been on and You've got to the end of the roundabout, and you're still not quite sure which way to turn. Maybe, then maybe, what you need is some common sense. And in the book of Genesis, we find both the endorsement of this fifth principle and the problem with it. Let's turn to Genesis 1. And I want you to see one or two very close things from the text. So do please turn to Genesis 1. It's a sort of Pastors fear that the the reader won't turn up and I'll just have to, you know, do the reading of the day. And, you know, I won't be able to find it in front of everybody looking at me. Genesis, you know, ah, where is Genesis 1? I know it's in here somewhere, you know. I found it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this created thing out of the dust, unlike all of the other creatures in creation, uniquely bears the image and the likeness of God himself. This is why God puts us in charge. That's why we humans are in charge. It says in verse 26, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. It's a comprehensive charge that we have over every aspect of creation. Indeed, over all the earth, it says. So you can see, can't you, from the very outset of creation that unlike the animals that we rule, but just like the God in whose image we're all made, we can think. As humans, we possess incredibly well-developed Faculties of logic and reason, the thing that we might just simply call today common sense. We all have some of it. And I'm aware that there are some animals out there who are also quite smart. Certain animals can learn clever tricks. Some animals can even save lives. Uh, alas, my animal, rugby, is not numbered among them. Ben's friend broke in through the window one morning early to play, and uh, rugby just slept through. But if I ever dare to think about even getting up to use my own bathroom in the middle of the night, he will growl and wake us all up. Emergency. If you've ever wondered, maybe you've looked down at the house there, you know, where I live, If you've ever wondered why the yard happens to be littered with about 35 different tennis balls, that's because rugby can't even fetch. (laughs) I am 80% certain that my dog's father was, in fact, a cat. (laughs) Or a mop. Maybe a mop, probably. Uh, Like the uh, the proverbial dog in, in our next reading, my dog has no common sense. He is not imbued with the image and the likeness of God. He doesn't have highly developed faculties of logic and reason. Only man has this. And woman also, before you freak out. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That word man there means human, evidently. Both men and women equally bear the image of God. Men and women, therefore, equally have the ability to think. The problem is that, unlike God, men and women also equally have the capacity to sin. And if you turn now to Genesis chapter 3, you see where it starts to go wrong. Genesis 3, verse 1. Favorite noise is the turning of scripture. My favorite smell is that creosote you put on the fence. If we could just get some creosote, I'd be. Just that be it. The Lord has returned. I'd be so happy. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And whether it's the serpent itself or whether it is some sort of evil entity as yet unknown behind the serpent, either way, this thing is crafty. It is subtle, shrewd, and sly. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He's introducing doubt about the command. Did God really say that? Did God really want you to do this? And if you look very closely at the Bible, you'll see that in fact he's misrepresenting the command. Look back to Genesis 2, verse 16, briefly. You'll see that what Satan is doing is he's misrepresenting what God really said. Genesis 2.16, God said, God speaking, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. God never said you can't eat any fruit. God said you can't eat that fruit. So the serpent invents a bogus command... And then says to Eve, the bogus command doesn't make any sense. So maybe you should make up some sense instead and use that God-given faculty of logic and reason, what we call common sense, to choose a better way, come up with a better command. You see the problem with the fifth CS, don't you? This common sense, you see the problem with it. We have this capacity to think like God. But we have this capacity to err and sin like Satan. And we might misuse our common sense. This is the problem with it. We're prone to make mistakes. In fact, I would say that by default, we will misuse our common sense. Left to our own devices, we will get it wrong. We will tend to serve ourselves. Our default position is to make mistakes. So just with our faculties alone and nothing else... Without these other four principles that we've looked at this Lent, if you're just on your own trying to think your way to God, you will probably go wrong. We will not figure our way through life without God. So what do we do? How do we respond? Eve gets it right at first. The first thing Eve does, it's what Jesus does in the wilderness when he's tempted, is she starts to quote scripture. Eve corrects the serpent by citing the command in chapter 3, verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. This is what we must always do when we use our common sense. We must always go back to the beginning of this series, to the beginning of the graphic Go round the roundabout Britishly, start here, driving on the wrong side of the road, and say, what does commanding scripture say? I've got an idea, but let's test it against the lively word of God first and foremost. What did God really command? She gets it right at first. Now look at how she gets it wrong. Because she continues in verse 3, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Who said anything about touch? No one. She's gone beyond the command now. She's made the command, the word, stricter than it really was. And I think there's a lesson for us here. I think as as Christians, we like to do this. We like to make up rules. We like to take a faith and surround it with a religion. We love to do this. Let's take something really simple like the grace of Christ alone, and let's just add on as many weird church things as we can come up with. This is how you get right with God. Jesus. Full stop. That's it. That is our only sermon. Jesus. You get right with God through grace in Christ alone. Everything else is an add-on. And add-ons will always take you further away. If we add on to God's commands, if we make the commands of God stricter than they really are, we will be far more likely to give up on them. We can't even keep his commands without adding some new ones of our own to try and keep as well. And as we saw at the beginning of this series from the the book of Revelation, the last paragraph of Scripture, that the effect of adding to the Word of God is identical to the effect of taking from the Word of God. They both lead you further away from Him. They both cause the same problem. So it starts off well. She cites the command of Scripture. Scripture. Then she goes wrong at the first turn by adding to it. And before she can gather her thoughts and figure out what's going on in this exchange, the serpent changes tactic on her and says, look, here's the real reason. Let's cut to the chase, shall we? Here's the real reason God doesn't want you to eat it. Verse 5, you will be like God. Well, hang on a minute. Chapter 1, verse 26 said that she already is made in the image and likeness of God. So the serpent is introducing doubt now, not about the command, but about the commander himself. Maybe God knows something that he's not told you. Maybe, maybe God's holding back on you. Maybe God's afraid that if you eat of this tree, then, then you'll become like him, and, and then maybe you know, he'll be demoted, and maybe you'll be God. Maybe this is all some scheme of God to keep himself uh, on the throne. She's now being compelled by an evil spirit, something that seeks to enthrone itself and whispers into our ear, why don't you enthrone yourself as well? And she's barely got to grips with this second tactic when the serpent changes tactic again, keeps her on the back foot and tries something else in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, hang on, no one ever said that it wasn't good. This rule had nothing to do with nutrition or flavor or appearance or any of that. It had everything to do with life. And just because it looks good and feels good and tastes good doesn't mean that it actually is good. But we love to do this, don't we? Well, I like it, and God likes things, so therefore this must be good. That's our human common sense. Just a few words with the snake And it's all been turned around. She's all over the place. What a mess. In fact, the uh, the scholar Beth Moore says, Satan has a counterfeit version of everything. Everything that God creates, Satan has a counterfeit version of it. And if you just look around our graphic and remind yourself of this series, you'll see that Satan has managed in this very short conversation to undermine every single point that we've looked at this Lent, every single one. The scripture no longer commands, it's been twisted. The spirit no longer compels. Instead, there is an unholy spirit tempting. Uh, And the signs, they're upside down. Let's just look at whether we think the fruit might taste good, and then surely it's good. The signs have been turned upside down, and they don't mean what they used to mean. And by the way, we missed one. Council of the Saints, where's Adam in all of this? Typical bloke. (laughs) No one knows. She's engaged with the forces of evil in the greatest spiritual battle the world will ever see. And like so many situations today, the man is absolutely nowhere to be found, or sort of lurking in the background like a limp piece of lettuce, just completely silent. You know, our wives are fighting spiritual warfare over the families, and the husbands, like, you know, check my iPhone, you know. I know I do it. I really like Formula One. And and, and Satan has made all the races happen at the same time as church. You know, I get the temptation, man. This is how it is. I have found out that, uh, that when I'm with other Christians, I make better decisions. When I'm in the body of Christ, when I'm with my family and my church family, I just make better decisions. When I get to reflect with people, I love you. When we talk about stuff, it helps. And uh, one of Satan's greatest tricks is to get us on our own, to isolate. He loves it when we stay in bed. He loves it when we go and find something else to do, when we drift away from the pews and our, and our fellow believers. He loves it because inevitably it's when we are on our own when we will make the most wrong turns. When the only thing that we have for company is the snake, we are going to make a few mistakes, I believe, and this in turn, these mistakes that we make once isolated will, of course, pull us not just further from the people of God, but further from God himself. Look at verse 8, feeling bad, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Then the blame game begins, verse 11, God speaking, have you eaten of the tree, he knows they have, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's defense in verse 12 begins like this, the woman, it's like the kids isn't it, you go into a room that they've trashed, you ask what they've done and the first thing to come out of their mouths is not an explanation, it's a name, it's a blame, Hannah, you know, (laughs) Ben, it's just that's how they work. You've been in here five minutes, you say to them. There's Lego all over the floor. Someone spilled a drink. One of you is bleeding. And there's a pair of knickers going around on a ceiling fan. What is going on? And they point at each other. Adam runs like a five-year-old's defense. The woman! And uh, who is Adam really blaming? It's actually not himself. It's not Eve either. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave... To be with me. You see, God, it's really your fault. You made her, right? And she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate because, you know, I didn't want to be rude. And look closely at the text. She also happened to be naked, so you can see why he wanted to stay on her good side. Doesn't explain why he was absent, though. Completely strange decision. We are hopeless at discernment. Hopeless at figuring out the right thing to do on our own. And uh, it means, this account from Genesis means that although all of us male and female are made in the image of God and we possess these divine faculties of logic and reason, that ability to think what we are calling common sense, every human has it. Since the fall, and maybe just before, every single human has also had this capacity to sin. The holiest person makes mistakes and the most wretched sometimes gets it right We are a mixed bag. Here's another problem. What you can't do is just learn in advance the right thing to do in every situation. This church can't just function like a sort of training room where you come in and you take notes and create a sort of playbook of every. Feasible scenario that could occur in your life and the right thing to do in them. Okay, right, this has happened. It's a page 94, item number three. Definitely, this is what we do here. We can't learn in advance the right thing to do in every situation. Decisions are highly situational. That's why we call uh, situations situations, they are situational. And what makes common sense in one situation won't in another. Sometimes you need to use a bit of common sense to figure out what to do. Let's turn to Proverbs 26. We will do the vomit stuff. Let's turn to Proverbs 26 for a really great example of the situational nature of wisdom. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The point is very clear. It is a biblical command. We can learn this one in advance and then obey it. Don't fight with idiots. Don't get sucked into a stupid argument with a stupid person. That's what the word fool means. It's quite a strong word. It means means stupid or silly. Don't fight with someone stupid. There are many stupid people out there. There are many opportunities to get into a ding-dong with an imbecile. There are argumentative folks out there, can you believe it, who, who, who don't back down. They like this stuff, and they never seem to learn. What are they like? Well, verse 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. What a, a grotesque image of recidative stupidity. The dog ate something that made it sick, and then it ate the sick what do you think happens next? You know, that is human stupidity, common nonsense. We we have this ability, certain people, just to keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over again. What happens next? It's sick again, of course. Describing a human Made in the image and likeness of God with divine faculties of logic and reason, the ability to think that thing that we call common sense as being like a stupid animal that re-ingests its own vomit is, is an appalling thing to say. But some people cannot be reasoned with. And before you get insulted about the stupid thing and the vomit, look at verse 12. This is not about intelligence. It's not about how many degrees and qualifications and certificates you have. It's about teachability. Even some members of the wise can't learn. Even some of the wisest people you meet are unteachable. Some people will start trouble wherever they are. I've found, maybe you have as well, that sometimes the smartest of people cause the worst of trouble. And you will hear stories of them in different settings, causing Trouble at school and trouble at the club and trouble at work and trouble at church, muckraking wherever they go and starting arguments and bickering all over the place. You can join in, if you like, and bicker and ding-dong with that person for the rest of your life if you want to. But I'm here to tell you, they will never learn. So the scriptural rules for fools is clear. Avoid. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. It's a bit awkward. (laughs) Lord, what are you doing? That makes preaching really difficult. Because you just said the opposite. Um, If these two verses were a very long way apart in the Bible, uh, and scholars had found this, they, they would think themselves very clever. And they would say, well, we found something out here which shows that scripture contradicts itself, and so clearly we can ignore the whole thing. Job done. Um, But the Holy Spirit put these two contradictory proverbs right next to each other, and I'm minded to believe that it was on purpose. Don't answer a fool. Do answer a fool. Eh? (laughs) How can they both be true? Well, I believe that they're placed together in a pair uh, because that is designed to teach us more together than either proverb could teach us alone. The application of our commanding scripture will often depend on the specific nature of the situation that you are in. If you think about English proverbs, we have the same thing, right? English sayings, um, strike while the iron's hot, only fools rush in. You know, we do this. The point is that there are times to act quickly before it's too late. There are times to slow down and consult and think and, and work it out slowly. And in the same way, the way that we discern which of these proverbs to apply, both biblical commands, will be highly governed by the situation that we are in, and our understanding of the situation that we are in will be governed by our common sense. So read the scriptures, the commanding scriptures. Listen to the compelling spirit. Talk with the counsel of the saints. Watch for circumstantial signs, and if then, at the end of all of this, you're still not quite sure what to do with a decision in your life, and you've gone around the magic roundabout of life and worked some things out, and what I say to you is then, use some common sense. See if each of these things is pointing in, in the same direction. It may well be if you've got a decision to make and you've got to the end of the roundabout, driving around it Britishly, that, in fact, you have several options, all of which are godly. They're all good options. And God is just allowing you to use that logic that you have to choose one of several pretty decent ways to go. If it's consistent with Scripture and the Spirit and the saints and the signs, you're on the right way. One last thing. Uh, This series has not really been about eternal life, and that worries me, because it should be, because we're in church. So uh, I love doing these thematic series where we look at a thing uh, that people have been asking about, like how do we make Christian decisions? I love doing that. Um, But the problem with a thematic series like this is that it can become a bit finger-waggy, a bit didactic, and a bit, you know, here's what you must do. And if we don't bring ourselves back to the centrality of the cross of Christ and the message of grace that we find in him alone, then it isn't actually a sermon. It's just self-help. We can use these five Lenten principles to navigate this life, God's ways, but we must be asking always, what about the next one? What about eternal life? I described Eve's conversation with the serpent earlier as an engagement with the forces of evil and the greatest spiritual battle the world will ever see. Well, it was at the time, but there was one greater subsequently. And the results of the last battle were greatly different. Because Christ, you see, Christ did not leave us in this mess. Christ did not leave us just floating around on this crazy roundabout. I know a lot of you have watched it on YouTube. You know, it's madness. Christ didn't just leave us constantly wondering which way to turn and what to do, endlessly circling and going around and around, reincarnated and back again to the start. Not at all. He came in. He stepped into the mess to fight for us. And as he does this, he exposes the enemy. And then he reverses the curse that came from the enemy. Then he restored our true image. And then he gives us something new. Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That image of God is marred, is spoiled, is, is tainted by the fall. But God doesn't just leave us spinning with a broken image, trying to figure our way out of this life to the next one. He steps in to, to put us back together and restore that image. The minute you turn to Christ that that broken image of God starts to be repaired. You start to be recrafted and remade in, in his likeness. And the promise is that when Christ returns, no matter how much you might be suffering right now today, he will make all things new and perfect that image in you. A gospel reading. Jesus says, when it comes down to it, actually whatever your life looks like now, whatever is going on, whatever important decisions you might have to make, when it comes down to it, there is in fact just one decision that you need to make. There is really just one turn. And that is with all that you have, with all that you are, forsaking all other ways, all other possessions, all other relationships, all other priorities, all other gods, all other thrones, even yourself, Will you turn to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the many turns of life and weighty decisions, who to marry, where to live, what job to take, which college to apply to, those huge decisions that shape who we are and the many small decisions, moving and studying and thinking and relating and and, and every little decision, God, in all of them, we just pray that you would lead us to one decision first, that penitent call to turn to Christ, forsaking all others, to enthrone you, Lord Jesus, as sovereign king. Father, if in this Lenten time it becomes apparent to us that we have another king. Father, in your tenderness, would you call us to repent, to let go of all other priorities? Father, would you add to us greatly more than we could possibly imagine? Would there be a new outpouring of your spirit in this place? Would there be a powerful resurgence of delight in your law? Would there be an increase of laughter of generosity and of freedom? Would you break addiction? Would you break powers of isolation that may be over us? Would you bring us in, further on, further up, further in? And Lord Jesus Christ, come soon, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's affirm our faith in the words of the creed. As we confess our faith, we believe in one God. Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's sit or kneel to pray. Our Heavenly Father, in this Lenten season and series, we, we pray that you would lead us back to your word. That you would give us a new delight for your law and the commanding of your scripture. That we feel a greater sense of Proximity and the compulsion of your spirit. If there is something but not of you that has tempted us instead of compelling us your way, would you free us from that this morning? Father, would you deepen the bonds of fellowship that we have with one another in this body and amongst all Christian people? We pray especially for the church the world over in those places where The gospel is under attack. And Heavenly Father, we ask for signs, signs of your kingdom. Would we be encouraged by the lively signs in this body, right here, right now? And would we be bold to pray for more? Heavenly Father, conform our thinking to your thinking. And we ask, Lord God, Especially that you would bless, anoint, protect, and preserve those among us that are suffering in any way. If we have permission, let's name those dear to us out loud. Lord, would those whispered names echo throughout your courts. We thank you that you've known every single one of those names long before they were even born. And we pray that in majesty and power and grace, you would intervene so as to answer our prayers where we are powerless. In the name of Jesus, amen.